This is uh, Psalm 53, to the chief musician, Setu Mahalat, a contemplation of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who seek, uh, who understand, who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great fear where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame because God has despised them. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Our sermon text today is uh, Genesis 43. It's verses 1 through 14. And uh, the title of the sermon is going to be A Difficult Decision for Israel. Now, while I'm reading these verses, I want you to try to remember who all the people have pictured in the past sermons, because if you can grasp that, then you understand that there is not only a difficult decision for Israel the Father, but there's also a difficult decision for Israel the people. All of this is pointing to the future, to us right now. But I do believe it's going to happen in our lifetime, because he has brought back this wayward group of people who have not been obedient to him and who are still not obedient to him, but he's done it for his purposes and it's to return his son, Jesus Christ, to the earth to reign from Jerusalem. They don't deserve what's coming, but he has done this for his own providential reasons. We'll start right now in verse 1 of chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain, which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy with buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him from my hand. You shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. And their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take back double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Once again, I want to explain that this is kind of an interim sermon. We've been going through a picture, which is a very long picture of the time of uh, Israel being out of the land all the way to the time they're back in the land and the church age has been going on during that time. But now they're being prepared to actually go back into Israel and they're being prepared for their meeting with uh, Jesus Christ. And that's what's being pictured in these sermons. And so this is kind of an interim sermon 
if you are a little bit lost because you didn't see one or another sermon, I'm still going to try to make it interesting to you, but I want you to know that this is kind of going uh, uh, to a logical end, which will be in about four or five sermons from now. So that's where we're at with this. Joseph here in this uh, particular passage uh, that we're talking about, Joseph is the ruler of Egypt right now, but he was sold by his brothers all the way back in chapter 37. This is now about 22 years later and all of that time. And until chapter 42, Jacob is never mentioned by name, nor is he discussed. In chapter 42, the sum events of his life that are recorded are no more than just a few words. But it's already evident that the loss of Joseph was never forgotten by him. He's refused to allow Benjamin to go to Egypt, even at the expense of another one of his sons. But now the food is running low and his decisions will affect not just Benjamin, but the entire family. He can no longer stubbornly refuse to act. If desperation in God's people is what it takes for God to move them, then desperation is what he will send. And we were talking about this before uh, the uh, sermon today in our Bible class, is that God sent 9-11. And I believe that that was divine judgment on this nation. And it hasn't worked. But he sends us times of desperation to get us to repent and to turn back to him. And that is what he will do. He'll do it time and time again until we finally act or until he finally has to judge the people. Whether some in Israel right now are religious, whether some in Israel right now have called on Jesus, it is irrelevant to the greater plans which are spoken of in the Bible. They as a nation must call on Jesus as Lord before he will return to them. As a collective whole, they have to do this. And when they acknowledge his lordship, that is when he will come back. And this is not a New Testament concept. It is one which travels all the way through the pages of the Bible. He has called them, and they must acknowledge that. There is Jacob, the man of flesh, and there is Israel, who is spiritually tied to his God. There is the whole nation of people who strive with God, either for him or against him, but they strive with him. There has been exile and punishment, but the future says there will be restoration and exaltation. In order to bring about the anticipated meeting between Joseph and Jacob, God has sent a famine. And in order to bring about a meeting between Jesus and Israel, God will send them what is known in the Old Testament as the time of Jacob's trouble. In the New Testament, we call it the tribulation. The people will be refined and they will call out and he will respond. The story of Jacob here follows that same path, foreshadowing the events of the future. Our text verse for today comes from the 119th Psalm. It's the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It's a psalm that I read every day of my life, the very first thing I do. Here we go. I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the proud oppress me. The psalmist cried out to the Lord concerning his integrity and asking for relief from his oppressors. In doing so, he asked the Lord to be his surety his pledge of covenant faithfulness. Jacob is fretted and he's anguished over the oppressors of chance and circumstance, harsh and oppressive foes whom he cannot control. Today, he is going to have to let go of his fears and he's going to have to put his trust back in the God who made personal promises to him time and time again in the years past. He's going to have to petition him for mercy and at the same time, he's going to have to acknowledge that God is in fact God and that we are utterly dependent on him for everything that comes our way. 
The sovereignty of God is something that we simply cannot miss in the pages of the Bible, and therefore it is something that we cannot miss in the world around us. No matter what our foe or oppressor is, no matter what he does to us, no matter what we face, and whether the foe is imagined or whether he's real, we can only place our trust and our cares in his capable hands. And this is the great truth that we discover from his word. And so, may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you, as I normally do today. The first is verses 1 through 5. It is a severe famine and a shortage of food. Verse 1, now the famine was severe in the land. The Bible has this very amazing way of telling us something will happen and then showing the fulfillment of it. Sometimes, though, what we think might be the fulfillment isn't the fulfillment at all, usually because of the translation into English. We get uh, uh, misperceiving what is actually going on. And what we might think of as unimportant is actually much more important than we thought. Chapter 43 begins with the words, Now the famine was severe in the land. Going back to chapter 41 ends with the words, So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all the lands. He had told Pharaoh that there's going to be this severe famine, and chapter 41 says that uh, at the end of it, it says that there is a severe famine in all the lands. Looking at these two like that, you'd think it was saying the same thing, but it's not. Here's why it's important. In chapter 41, when interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, Joseph said this to Pharaoh, So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. When Joseph said that, he used the words, Chaved hu me'od. It will be very heavy. But at the end of chapter 41, it uses the words, Hazak ha-ra'av. This means that the famine had strengthened or grown strong, but it wasn't the crushing burden that Joseph had said was coming. When the strengthening famine came, Jacob sent his sons to Egypt to get food, and that made up all of chapter 42. Now, other than Simeon, all of the sons are back in the land of Canaan for a while, and it doesn't tell us how long they're there, whether it's weeks or months or even an entire year. That's irrelevant. What matters is that whether it is a short time or whether it's a longer amount of time, the famine hasn't just strengthened. It has become a heavy, crushing burden. It now, in this verse, uses the same words to describe the famine that Joseph said would come about. Now, why is this important? It's important because Jacob had to face the reality because of the famine. If the famine weren't so severe, Simeon may have been left to rot in jail forever. I mean, poor Simeon. Jacob may have found some other way to uh, work things out back up there in Canaan. But with the famine now in its full force, he no longer has that choice. And why is that important? It's important because God showed in advance that it would be that way. And so then, why is that important? The reason why all of this is important is because God has a plan. And in order to make that plan happen, he has arranged everything to have its intended effect. In Acts chapter 17, it says these words, And he made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they may grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Every person is in exactly the place and the time that God wants them, in which he knew would be the opportune time and the place for them to seek him out. 
What we see as arbitrary actually has a purpose. Your car didn't start and you get angry. But if you had left on time, you would have hit the guy on the bicycle who <laughs> swerved to miss the little lizard that ran out in front of him. You find a quarter on the sidewalk, and if you're like me, you go, yeah, and you're all excited, and you pick it up, and you put it in your pocket. The quarter was dropped, though, by someone who is sneezing because they have the flu. Later, you get the flu, and you're miserable, but you're home. You look out the window, and your neighbor falls off a ladder while cleaning the gutters, and he hits the concrete. You call the paramedics, and they come, and they save this guy. They tell you that he would have died without you calling them. Things like this happen all of the time. Nothing, absolutely nothing is random with God. The famine has gone from strong to heavy, and Jacob has choices to make. The economy is falling apart, and we have choices to make. Our health insurance is canceled, and now what do we do? We get frustrated, and we get upset, but it all keeps showing purpose. I do not believe that anything is arbitrary. If it is, then what is the purpose of life? My wife and I, just a couple weeks ago, we watched the Ken Burns documentary on the Civil War. If the word arbitrary describes what happens around us, then think of those hundreds of thousands of people that died in battle. Some of them were as young as 13. We saw pictures of little children with rifles rotting away in trenches. Unless there is a purpose for every single one of them, then those gruesome pictures show a very uncaring God. And that's just one war in a line of wars, plagues, natural disasters, and horrifying accidents that reaches all the way back to the very beginning of human existence. As Paul said, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It just doesn't matter. If arbitrary, the word arbitrary, is a part of our human existence, then Christ may have come or he may not have come. Thank goodness Mary didn't catch some flu bug and die before Jesus came. Nothing is arbitrary. So as you go about your day, do not be afraid to keep seeing his hand in everything that happens. It all has meaning. Jacob either never really understood this or he has forgotten it. He is now a man who is overwhelmed with the events around him. Where there should be trust and faith, there is the man afraid of how things are going to turn out. And Philippians 4 gives us the perfect remedy for what ails Jacob. It says there, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now the famine was severe in the land, and Jacob is forced to finally act. He has failed to see in this God's divine and purposeful hand, and this is because his faith has slacked. Remember the Lord, Jacob, he is right there with you. This is the thing that God asks you to do. Verse 2, And it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. The time has come where the duration and the immensity of the famine has once again brought the household to an immediate need. Nothing has grown and the food has been eaten up to the point where Egypt is the only option left. The grain is almost gone, but he doesn't tell them to go back and get more grain this time. Instead, he tells them to go back and buy a little food. Don't misunderstand here. The grain is the food, but grain can also be used for planting. Last time when he sent them, it was to buy grain. Maybe they'd eat some, maybe plant some. This time it will only be used as food. They simply need to survive and nothing more. 
The words for grain and food are being used synonymously in one way, but they're also being used to show a distinction. Joseph did exactly the same thing back in chapter 41 when he was speaking to Pharaoh. There he said this, And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. He said grain and food synonymously. The grain is the food because it will be good for nothing else. It won't grow during those seven years of famine. Jacob finally has to face the inevitable, but instead of facing it directly, he's going to try to get around it. Now, you got to remember what the grain is signifying. It signifies God's word. In this verse that we just looked at, it's this word shever. It uh, means cracked. It's the food that is not yet purified. The Jewish people are still dealing with the Old Testament. They don't have the full Bible. Okay, which would be the word bar. And we're going to get to that eventually, but it's still using the word shever. But he is trying right now to get around the word of God. He's trying to, God has ordained a famine. He's ordained that they must go through this trial in order for his purposes to be met. So here is a perfect example for us. We have something in our life that we want or that we need. And what do we do? We know that we're going to violate God's word if we take this avenue. So we try to get around it. Well, I'm just going to do this. And this is exactly what's happening with Jacob. He's trying to get around what God has ordained to meet his purposes and his goals. And when we do that, we leave God behind because his word reveals Jesus and Jesus reveals the Father. We cannot have the disconnect in our life where we're not relying on the word of God for every choice that we make. Verse 3. But Judah spoke to him, saying, This man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. At the end of the last chapter, it was Reuben who tried to convince Jacob that Benjamin was needed. He said to Jacob, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. That didn't work. Jacob refused. Judah now steps forward. He's the one who is in the line for the birthright because his three older sons have all done something. They've committed offenses which remove them from that right. Now he, in this position, reminds Jacob what came about in Egypt. He says they were given a solemn warning. In Hebrew, ha'ed he'id, did warn, solemnly warn. And the warning was that Benjamin was not to be left behind. He had to go with them. It would be pointless to even try and certainly life-threatening if they did, which leads right into verse 4. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. If Benjamin is with them, they will go down and buy food. The people will eat, the family will survive, and there is always the prospect of a future. If Benjamin will go too. Verse 5. But if you will not send him, we will not go. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. But if no Benjamin, no go. He speaks in a way which will preempt Jacob from coming up with some other scenario. He is not going to get around God's word. And neither are we. God has spoken and we must use his word and apply it to our life in order to properly relate to the God who gave us his word in the first place. There is none, nothing, which is going to work in this instance. Either Benjamin goes or there will be no meeting with, uh, with Joseph as the ruler. Now, it's a good time to stop and remember who these each represent. I want to do this from time to time so you know what's going on. Joseph pictures Christ the Lord. He's the Lord on his throne. The brothers picture the people of Israel, 
all of the tribes. Judah is the tribe of Judah, but who speaks collectively for the Jewish people. That's why they're called Jews today. That word comes from the name Judah. All right. Benjamin is Christ and those Jews who are in Christ. So can we meet with God without Jesus? That's the question, because that's what's being pictured here. Jesus or uh, Benjamin is picturing Christ and those who are in Christ. Can the Jewish people meet with God without them? And the answer is no, and neither can we. We cannot go to God without Jesus in our life. The Bible says there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. So we can pray to any statue, we can pray to any other deity, and God does not hear. In fact, the Bible says it explicitly. Your sins have separated you from your God so that he will not hear. Only in Jesus Christ are the sins removed, and then the avenue is open, which is, by the way, pictured by the veil being rent when he was crucified. There is now full and complete access to God, but it's only through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, we cannot approach the Lord. It doesn't really matter what we like or choose to believe. Only Jesus can save us as is recorded in his word. Only Jesus can wash our sins and only he, our burdens, can relieve. Our second thought today, Judah will bear the burden. This is verses 6 through 10. Verse 6 says, And Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? Five times in the last chapter, the name Jacob was used. The name Israel was used only when speaking of the sons, not the man. Now in this chapter, the name Jacob is never used and Israel is used three times. The last time that the name Israel was used for Jacob the man was, believe it or not, all the way back in chapter 37 when he sent Joseph up to look for the other brothers when he went up to Shechem in the north area. In that chapter, which was 15 sermons ago, four months ago, Joseph left the family circle, and now he may lose Benjamin as well. There is Jacob, and there is Israel. There is reliance on self, and there is reliance on God. There is each of us. Are we walking in the spirit, or are we walking in the flesh? The Bible is asking us to look at this man and to decide how we will conduct our own lives. He's already a member of the covenant community, but will he live as a faithful one or not? If you've called on Jesus Christ here in this congregation as Lord and Savior, you are already a member of the covenant community. But are you going to walk in the spirit or are you going to walk in the flesh? It's your choice. He leaves it up to you. Jacob is still a member. He's not kicked out of it, but he has to either walk with God or not walk with God. And we have to do the same. And that's why we come to Bible studies. That's why we go to church. That's why we read the Bible at home and meditate on his word so that we can walk with God and we can fellowship with him all through the day. The Bible says, pray without ceasing. Well, how do you do that? You just talk to him. It doesn't mean get on your knees and just you know, be on your knees all day long. It means to do your regular life, but do it in fellowship with God. Thank you, God, for the flower. Thank you, God, for my wife. Thank you for whatever comes through your mind fellowship with God and pray without ceasing. How are you going to act when you face adversity? Where is your trust? Jacob is now finally going to have to trust God. He asks, why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? It is his note that he knows now that Benjamin must go, even though he doesn't actually say it yet. And the irony is almost dripping. It's almost dripping from this moment. Think about it. He who is my only hope 
of holding on to the past is now my only hope of having a future. And though he doesn't know it, the one he is so afraid of losing is the only one who can bring him back to the presence of the one that he believes that he has lost. The irony abounds. Verse 7, but they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? The man asked and they answered, it would never have dawned on them that the, the saying of one thing would lead to another. There was no evil intent in what they said, just matter of fact questions and answers. He also asked about the father and they answered accordingly. How could they possibly know that he would ask for Benjamin to be taken down there? He didn't ask for Jacob to come down. It is all just the way it turned out and the fault cannot be placed on them. Verse 8, Then Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the lad with me and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. With the explanation complete, he makes his petition again and gives the reason for it clearly and completely. Send him with me and we will go. This involves our very lives and the lives of the children. Benjamin needs to go. What actually makes this more surprising is that Benjamin now is upwards of 30 years old. He's not a little boy. They're talking about him like he's a little boy sitting there. But this shows the obedience of the family to their father and the immense passion that Jacob still feels all these years later after Rachel's death and then after the loss of Joseph. Verse 9. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then you will let me bear the blame forever. In chapter 37, Judah's the one who recommended selling Joseph when he was in the pit. Judah did that. Bad Judah, right? In chapter 38, he was the one who traded his signet, his cord, and his staff for a tryst with a prostitute. Bad Judah again. In both of these, Judah pictures the Jewish people. Now this same Judah offers himself as a pledge for Benjamin. The situation is completely reversed from what it once was. Again, if there's anything that we can learn from things like this, it is that God's divine favor is not dependent on our past, but on our present. The things we have done, we cannot change. If our past is all that God judges us on, then when would we ever have a time that we could get right with God? It would never happen. In other words, there is no thing that you have done that will keep God from forgiving you because there is always right now. Only when right now ends at your death is the chance lost. God is extending his hand out to you. As a demonstration of that, he says that if he doesn't bring Benjamin back, then let me bear the blame forever. In Hebrew, I shall be a sinner against you all the days. In essence, I make myself liable as a sinner forever. Keep thinking of Israel. Keep thinking of Joseph. Keep thinking of all who these people picture. Benjamin is the key. If you have Benjamin, all is good. If you have the son of the right hand, then God is on your side. So stop dwelling on your past and look to the future. If God forgives you for your past, then your past is forgiven. Now, I'll tell you something. My past, I don't want to forgive my, forget my past. But I also don't want to dwell on it thinking, oh God, you know, my past is forgiven and it's behind me. 
but I don't want to forget my past because it is my reference to what I don't ever want to do again. If I go forgetting my misdeeds of the past, then I may make them again in the future. So I love to remember my past, but it is gone. It is behind me. And yours is too, if you are in Jesus Christ. After you're forgiven, the only bonds that are on you are the ones that you impose. Be freed from your guilt. You are free from your sin. Jesus washed it all away at Calvary's cross. Look forward now, forgetting what is past because of him. Don't fret and have another moment of loss. Eyes on Jesus. Fix them on the eternal life ahead. Because of him, you too have been raised from the dead. Verse 10. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. Two things. Two things can be inferred from this short verse. The first is that of a mild scold to their father Jacob. If you would let us go when we asked, we would have returned from the second trip already. Time is wasting. Stop being so stubborn. The second is exactly the opposite. If you would let us go when we asked, we would have returned from the second trip already. Benjamin will be fine. Just stop worrying. Our third thought today, a present for Pharaoh, verses 11 through 14. Verse 11 says, And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man. A little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Proverbs 18, verse 16 says these words, A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. Solomon may have remembered this very story when he wrote that. Israel is looking to pacify the ruler and to show that what the sons told him originally was true. If they were spies, they could bring along any person in the world and claim that he was their brother, couldn't he? But going the extra step by bringing this gift was intended to convince him that they had been straight with him all along. It was also a gift to pacify him before they dealt again over whatever matters were going to arise. This worked for Jacob when he finally met up with his estranged brother Esau many years earlier, if you know that story. Before meeting him, what did he do? He sent this series of extravagant gifts to him in order to soothe any continuing bitterness between the brothers. And it worked. Esau met him with hugs and kisses. He's hoping now that this gift will bring about peace as well. And so he tells them to take along six special things, balm, honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Sending along something like this would be all the more special considering that the famine is as harsh as it is. It would be almost unthinkable to give away your last little bit of food if, if the famine was to get worse, wouldn't it? It is truly a gift of faith regardless of the size or the amount of the gift. And so that asks us each to stop and consider what kind of a gift are we giving if it doesn't cost us anything, if there's no sacrifice involved? You know, we can give money to a church. We can give our time to uh, a ministry. We can do this and we can do that. But if it doesn't inconvenience us, then it's not really harming us at all, is it? Now, I will tell you, and I bring this up from time to time because it's my one reference point for doing something, is Saturday mornings when I go down to the projects. Now, I could stay home and I could make more money doing something or I could, you know, cut the lawn every Saturday morning or watch TV or do a million things that I love to do. But instead... I and a select group of other people go down every Saturday morning and we spend our time in the projects doing something that I don't really like to do, but I benefit from greatly at the same time. And so if you have something like that in your life, if you're giving something more than what is just, you know, accommodating, 
If you're actually taking something and sacrificially giving it away, I know that the Lord will reward you for it. And the answer is yes, he rewards me and those other men every week. Something good happens where we just leave and we're feeling blessed. We get there and we don't want to be there, but when we leave, we always feel blessed. And that is what the Lord will do when you sacrificially give something of your time or of your resources or of your money or whatever for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's our one life. We only have a certain number of days to do it. Don't spend it in front of the TV. Spend it doing at least something during the week for him. Verse 12, take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Jacob's instructions to take double money, and you may not care about this at all, but I'm going to tell you anyway. It can mean one of two things in Hebrew, all right? In the Hebrew, it says money of a second. So it could mean the same amount as the first time. They took this down and now take the same amount, okay? Not twice as much. Or it could mean twice as much as the first time. You took this much, now take twice as much plus this much. If he meant double, then he may want to buy more food this time so they have extra and they can uh, last longer. Or he may ex have expected the uh, cost to rise, and so you're taking extra money for the higher cost of the grain. I always assumed that it was the same amount of money. You got this, take the same amount, and that is your double money. Whatever, people debate that, and I want you to know that both of those are, op uh, are according to the Hebrew, you could infer it either way. Along with that money, though, he does tell them to take back the original money, too, thinking that the return of the money might have been some type of an oversight. And here he uses a word, mishke, which is not found anywhere else in the entire Bible. It means something caused to wander, which implies a mistake. It was an intentional oversight. Now, now that you know that, I want to remind you of what it says in Acts 3, where Peter is talking to the people about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and he said, you did this in ignorance. Okay, not all the people in Israel knew what they were doing. They were just saying, crucify him. We want this guy instead of him. And, uh, you know, the leaders knew that they were crucifying an innocent man, but not all the people did. The collective body of Israel did this in ignorance. And I believe that that's what's being pictured here with this unusual word causing something to wander. And that's what the people have done now for 2,000 years. They've wandered because they did something in ignorance. It was a mistake. All of this is pointing to what is coming in the future with Israel. Verse 13, take your brother also and arise, go back to the man. What is implicit before now becomes explicit. Benjamin will go. The future keeps unfolding in the present and there's nothing that we can do to stop it. We can wring our hands, we can fret, we can stamp our feet, but time keeps moving forward. At times like this, we're much more fortunate than Jacob though, aren't we? He was an ancestor of Jesus and he actually had personal dealings with Jehovah, but he lacked the wise words that we can refer to anytime that we forget that things will in fact work out. When Jesus came, he told us these words. Let me read this to you from Luke chapter 12. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on, Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you are then not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed 
like one of these. If then God so clothes the, the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And Paul, he gives us a briefer but an equally important insight into the things we can't control. The famous passage from Romans chapter 8, which we all say to ourselves, but we don't really believe it because we get right back in the Jacob rut. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purposes. For whom he foreknew, he foreknew us, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. It's already done in God's mind. We're already glorified. We're living. It doesn't mean that we're not going to go through this life of trouble and trial. But we are already glorified in his mind. And that means that whatever happens, we're in good shape in the end. So don't be anxious about the things that are bringing you down. God cares for the birds. He's clothed the mere grass in unparalleled beauty. And even more, he has wisely taken everything that happens and he has woven it together into a tapestry of goodness for his people. His child, who died on the battlefield of Antietam, was already glorified in his mind before the rifle bullet ended his life. Nothing is random with God. Verse 14, and may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your older brother and Benjamin. El Shaddai, God Almighty has been named only four times so far in Genesis, including this one here. The first time was when he spoke to Abraham in chapter 17. It was at the time of the circum, uh, covenant of circumcision. Then in chapter 28, when Isaac blessed Jacob before he went away, he blessed him using the name El Shaddai. After that, in Genesis 35, El Shaddai appeared personally to Jacob at Bethel. In each of those three accounts, a blessing for fruitfulness and a multitude of descendants is either pronounced or promised. Now, as a hope that those blessings include Simeon and Benjamin, Jacob invokes that great name once again. May this great God who made these promises to our people and to me personally show us this mercy. He is placing his trust in the providence of God to restore him to those that he has lost. And in fact, he already has already lost Simeon and Benjamin. The moment that they left, they were lost. The moment that our children walk out the door for the school bus, they are, in essence, lost to us. The last time that we saw someone was the last time because we no longer see them. There are no guarantees that that separation will not be permanent. Hence, the funeral service that I did yesterday. That lady was alive and then she was dead and they will never see her again. We normally don't think this way, but eventually everything has a last time. Jacob's calling on El Shaddai is for mercy that this loss won't be permanent. But God is God and Jacob has now faced that. And in acknowledgement of it, he says these words, which finish our verses today. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Adam Clark the great Methodist theologian from ages past translates it this way. And I, as I shall be childless, so I shall be childless. When the sons walk out the door, he will, in fact, be childless. If God decides that that is how it is to be, then that is what I must accept. 
There are things that are simply beyond our control, and all we can do is petition God and wait on his answer. Esther realized this before she had to go meet the uh, king concerning the preservation of the Jewish people. It was the same attitude of resignation to forces beyond her own control that she said these words to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And the young man went off to battle, hugging his mom, kissing his little sister. If I return, I know not, but God does. There are few real assurances in life. And so when one comes along, we should hold on to it. We should even cling to it. Of those few available assurances, the one that matters most is found tied up in the God whom Jacob just petitioned, God Almighty, El Shaddai. He is the one who sits on heaven's throne and superintends over the spinning of billions of galaxies. And yet he also watches over the souls of men. The God who cares about the flitting sparrow cares much more about the destiny of those souls. He cared enough to send his son to restore us to harmony with him. So I want to take just another minute and explain to you once again why Jesus came and how you can be rectified and reconciled to him. The Bible says that we have sinned, every one of us. All of us have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. That's why we die. But worse than the physical death which is coming, which we're all going to face, is the the spiritual death, which we all received the moment we were born because we were born in Adam, sons of Adam. And so here we are spiritually dead, waiting for an eternal separation from God at our physical death. And yet he sends Jesus Christ into the stream of humanity and says, I will bring you back to life spiritually so that you can now communicate with my father through me. I'll be the mediator between you two. And then when your physical death comes or the rapture comes, then you will be given a new body and you will live eternally in his presence. It is the blood of Jesus Christ which covers that sin of Adam and which covers all of the sins of our life and nothing else can do it. There's nothing else that God will accept because God cannot accept anything else. It is his righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Nothing else is. And so it is Jesus Christ who makes that bridge possible from the finite to the infinite. And it all goes through the cross of Calvary. Great song today. I cling to that old rugged cross. It couldn't have been perf more perfect. Now, our closing verse today is uh, from Isaiah 38. And I'm going to quote you from the English Revised Version. I've never quoted this version before, but I was reading it, and he said this verse so beautifully. Like a swallow or a crane, so did I chatter. I did mourn as a dove. My eyes fail with looking upward. O oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be thou my surety. It's the Lord who is our surety. It's not anywhere else. It can't be in our own deeds because our own deeds, when do we stop? When is it enough? It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And all of these sermons are just trying to get the Jewish people back to the one that they rejected. That's a wonderful story. God is so good to us. He is so absolutely wonderful to us. So if you have that sin in your life that you need to be covered by the blood of Christ, just call on him. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's all he asks for you. Just by faith, reach out. 
And I'll tell you, as I do each week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. And I'd like to note also that next week we're going to go Genesis 43, 15 through 25. It's called Peace to You. Do not be afraid. All right. That'll be our 108th Genesis sermon. And our poem today before we take communion is entitled, If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Now the famine was severe in the land. Things in Canaan weren't looking too grand. And it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain, which they had bought from Egypt then, their father said to them, buy us a little food, go back again. But Judah spoke to him, he did express, saying, the man solemnly spoke, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. This is no joke. If you send our brother with us, that is good. We will go down together and buy you food. But if you will not send him along, we will not go down. This we will not do. For the man said to us in a manner strong, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell another? To the man, why did you squeal, whether you still had another brother? But they said, the man asked us with care about ourselves and our kin, asking, is your father still alive over there? Have you another brother? Tell me therein. And according to these words, him we told, could we possibly have known that he would say, as from his tongue, the words rolled, bring your brother down, let him be shown. Then Judah said to his father, Israel, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die as you know well, both we and you and our little ones also. I myself for him will be surety. From my hand you shall require him. I the guarantee. If I do not bring him back to you and him before you set, let them let then let me bear the blame forever. You shall never forget. For if we had not lingered, it's true, by now we would have returned a second time to you. Then their father Israel to them spoke, Then do this if it must be so. Take some of the best fruits of the land to that bloke. In your vessels carry down a token and go. A little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh take along too, and some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take these for the journey. This you shall do. Take double money in your hand and uh, take back in your hand the, the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight, but it seems kind of funny. Take your brother also and arise. Go back to the man. Do as I advise. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your older brother and Benjamin so that this difficult ordeal will finally cease. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. If my son dies, my heart will be forever grieved. God sent his son on a mission too, but he knew that the outcome from the start. And still he sent Jesus for me and you to show us the depth of the love in his heart. This is the love of God of, in Christ our Lord and the beauty of the good news for each of us. There we see it recorded in his superior word, the marvelous majesty of our King, Jesus. And so, with a song of thanks and praise, let us hallow our great God for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much again for these wonderful stories that we can see what actually happened in human history. Literal reading of your Bible and we can also apply moral truths to it. And we can find things that affect us that are already seen in these Old Testament passages. And uh, I thank you for the prophecies which are included them as well, in them as well, which uh, show us of things that are coming. How you have taken a book at the beginning of your word, written 3,500 years ago, and you can show us things that are going to happen 
maybe in our own lifetime. To me, it's so astonishing, and yet it's so wonderful to know that you are in control over human history and that you are faithful to your covenants even when we are not, and that we have the assurance, the absolute assurance of being reconciled to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't need to worry if we fall from grace. We cannot. Grace from you is sufficient for all eternity. What a gift. What a wonderful, marvelous gift. Help us never, ever to preach anything but the grace of Jesus Christ. Help us never to put anybody into bondage by telling them that they have to somehow please you in a way other than through your own righteousness. Help us to hold that and to cling to it and know that the cross of Calvary is our path back to you. Our eternal destiny is secure. Thank you for the people here. Thank you for those that watch on YouTube. And I would ask that you would bless each and every one of them in some way that they know that your divine hand is upon them and they're not in some darkened valley somewhere, but that you are there with them. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We give you all the glory that you're due and we do it insufficiently, but we try as best we can to praise you and to give you this. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.